ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our guest again is the amazing ADPNR, the founder of Cogsy and author of Life Profitability, and we're going to talk about starting a new SaaS product today. This episode is brought to you by Hotjar. This tool lets you see how people truly experience your site or product and gives you users a voice. Let real users show and tell you which changes your team should make to improve user experience. Eliminate the guesswork. Use Hotjar to understand how users experience your site. Try Hotjar business free for three months at hotjar.com slash UI breakfast. Hey, Eddie. Hey, Jane. Thanks again for having me for a second time, I believe. I have talked to you so many times on the record, I'm not even sure. (laughs) (laughs) So in case someone on on the show doesn't know you, could you give us a brief intro of yourself, the amazing brands that you stand behind and what you've been up for lately? Yeah, totally. So um, I now introduce myself as, you know, being Eddie, I've built and sold two software businesses they were uh, WooThemes and WooCommerce that got acquired by Automatic uh, way back in 2015. And then I got into Converjo, where we built email marketing automation for e-commerce brands, sold that to Campaign Monitor at uh, kind of towards the back end of 2019, uh, spent most of 2020 with Campaign Monitor, building the park there. And then since kind of you're leaving there, I've, uh, I've published the book called new, uh, Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success, and also founded a new a new software startup called Cogsy, where we're helping e-commerce brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions. How would you describe your you know, career qualification? Are you a developer by trade, are you a marketer, or just you know, lifelong founder? <laughs> yeah, probably the latter. And I'm not, I, I'm neither enamored by the words founder or entrepreneur. In fact, I think where I'm leaning towards the kind of in the recent past is actually, I, I feel more like a maker. I like, or a builder even. I like doing things and putting putting actual things out there, whether it's a, a software product, whether it's a team that supports that software product, or whether it's a book, but something that I can put out there that at least in part represents myself. So I I definitely did some coding uh, way back in, in, in WooThemes days. I built the first product that kind of, you know, ultimately became WooThemes. That's how Magnus and Mark, my co-founders, and I, I met back then. But I definitely don't, beyond kind of you know, tweaking uh, a line or two or CSS here these days, I should not be writing any code. So generally my role in any kind of your business venture then is to take care of all of those other things, except for, you know, engineering within a startup. Tell us more about your recent project, the book called Life Profitability. And you've been on numerous shows for it and you've made like a massive publicity splash. And uh, tell us what kind of, you know, passion project detour that was before <laughs> between different SaaS products. Yeah. So what happened, Jane, was, you know, with Converjo, my, my previous startup, probably about midway through the journey, my team and I stumbled onto this idea of, you know, building a life and family first company and kind of, we use that as a way to describe our culture. And our mission attached to that was that we wanted to to do fun, stimulating, challenging, and profitable work. But we also acknowledged that the most meaningful things that we could be doing with our lives was outside of work with people that were not our colleagues. So we had that, we got to that point of clarity. And I ultimately used that as a catalyst. And this, just to timestamp this for people, this is around 2016, 20, like mid, I would say mid, mid to late 2016. And what I ultimately did was I, I wrote probably about 35,000 words in that realm of what it means to be life and family first, like using many of the anecdotes from Converger's days. And then when Converger ultimately gets acquired by Campaign Monitor, I, my role in, in the team and the company changed a bit. I wasn't the founder CEO anymore. Like there were certain things that other teams within Campaign Monitor took play, you kind of took over. And um, that created a little bit of space for me. And with the acquisition, I also had kind of financial means to put behind something. So what I actually ended up doing was hired a publishing team to take those 
those words that I had initially written and really make a book out of it. Because um, at that stage, like I, in terms of writing a book, like this is not my first book. I've like way back then, I, you know, I published a couple, self-published a couple of things. And I know that kind of the, the first 80 or 90% of writing a book is the easy part. And then the, the last 10%, making sure that your the narrative and the flow is there is much, much harder. Plus I'm not built for that part. But crucially, if, you know, if anyone like, asked me like why did I do this it really is about for me it was part of legacy um and thinking like what what kind of artifact can I leave behind in this in this world you know beyond my kind of mortal existence that somewhat at least represents these ideas that I had right so a big part legacy and then I I really just wanted to start having a a different conversation about it, what it means to kind of build a business, you know, what it means to be capitalistic. Because I don't think, I don't think the mainstream versions of either of those things today are perfect by any means. And I think having broader, more diverse conversations about it, you know, potentially helps all of us figure out a, a better version of those things. Can you give us a recap of key principles that you promote in the book? And uh, part of this is because this new business of yours, which we're going to be talking about today, it's definitely the most mindful of all three, I guess. And you are trying to approach it with all these principles in mind. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I guess at the core, um, and just explaining the term life profitability, is that I wanted to to figure out like how do you build a business that's not just financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word, but truly kind of you know, a business that profits one's whole life. And when I say one's whole life, I don't think that applies just to the founders of this business. So in this case, me, I think it should extend to everyone that that business touches, primarily the team, right? the team that does a lot of the hard work to actually create this thing. So, and when I say, you know, build a business that profits one's whole life, I, what I mean with that is to say, we all have, I don't, firstly, I don't think we we live to work or work to live, right? And I think in that sense, work is just part of our broader lives. And we have this big life portfolio then, and work being just one of those things in a portfolio. And all of us have different things that we put into that portfolio. For me, that includes my family, right? It includes geeking out about wine every now and again. Um, it, it includes this thirst for learning curiosity that I have. Um, it definitely, as I said, it definitely includes that work, that, that interest in making new things. But what I ultimately need to do there is I need to figure out, like, how do I kind of spend time being ambitious, doing the hard work in my business without neglecting all of those other parts of my life that are also important because ultimately if if I can't do that then I don't think I'm truly happy right so I I think having that very narrow lens and thinking through hey if I'm just a successful founder or entrepreneur and I make millions of dollars and that's going to make me happy I think that's a a very flawed kind of way to see life and I'm not trying to suggest by any means that money does not contribute to happiness. I just think that very few people that have any kind of monetary goal in mind ever, nobody really wants the money, right? We all want something that we attach to that money. Even if you just keep the money in the bank and what you ultimately want is a plan B and a safety net, whatever, that's probably fine. Or for most people it is, I want that money because I can pay off my mortgage, or I want that money because I can buy this car or go on that kind of holiday or have that kind of experience. So we never really want the money. We want something else. And I I am just trying to think through how can I have more of those something else's effectively in my life and have that now and not constantly compromising the thing because I'm so narrowly focused on just building a business. That's such a great stance. And uh, of course, I can hear, you know, a lot of skeptical listeners thinking like, of course, AD made like bazillion dollar exit. Now he can talk about, you know, smart things, but we can always all use some sort of wisdom like that in everyday life, not postpone important things to when I have time to when I have money and try and do the MVP of your happiness sort of earlier. Right. That's definitely my thinking, Jane. I think, I think if you invest in those in your whole life, right? And making sure that kind of every part thereof gets the due investment that it needs, whether it's time, attention, presence, sometimes money, 
then I think you're ultimately also showing up as a, a better entrepreneur, a better leader in your businesses. So I think there is a way in which that symbiosis happens. And that is why that's important, ultimately. Um, so it's not, as I said, it's, it's not about merely reaching a point where you have those gazillion dollars and then can you sit in your kind of your, <laughs> on your high horse and propose these things. I, I literally think that there's just a holistic way of kind of, you know, thinking about what true happiness is and then figuring out like, what do I need to do to empower that? Because that ultimately serves all the parts of our lives, including being a better entrepreneur and founder. Awesome. Now that we are done with the life principles here, let's, let's switch into the pragmatic mode and walk through a large number of decisions that you have to make when you're starting a new product. So tell us about Cogsy. What is it and uh, what does it do? Yeah, so the the first version of Cogsy, which um, and I chuckle at that because when I first had the idea for Cogsy, I I had the kind of a whole you know it's probably seven year roadmap planned out in terms of what this mammoth beast you know, needed to be, and that that vision is still there. But one of the biggest challenges in the last couple of months, as momentum has been picking up on our side, has been to get really clear and get really focused about. What what is it that we can build as a first and initial version? And I say initial because it's, it's never just the first version, right? There's always already kind of you know, a plan, so kind of or additions and improvements plan. So that initial version is probably the version we have for the next six to twelve months. So getting really clear about that, and what we've decided to build is, you know, a tool that helps e-commerce brands, e-commerce merchants make smarter purchasing, inventory purchasing decisions. And breaking that down, it has three components, which is helping them prioritize where to invest their working capital in terms of inventory, helping them forecast that future demand of kind of what do I expect? What, what kind of inventory do I need going forward? And then finally, building a kind of a ease-use, semi-automated workflow for them to constantly, proactively order the the right kind of products, the right number of products that they effectively need to meet their kind of growth goals. So that's what we're building as as the very first version of the stage. As I said, that's the that's a little kind of you know, almost a, a microcosm of what the, that bigger five to seven year kind of journey was. And as I said a big part of that work that I had to do as you know product owner for the moment was really paring that back down to something that is um, maybe not MVP. I think we're slightly beyond MVP, but a really, really solid V1 that we could then take to market. Let's do the audience drill and the pain drill. So what is the audience? And you mentioned that's e-commerce, but do you have any narrow profile of who might be the ideal customer? And what is the exact pain that you have identified and how you know that they experience this pain? Yeah, so the latter is, is probably a little easier in the sense that the pain is around not knowing, A, not knowing what kind of when to order and how much to order, right? And that's generally kind of the way people are trying to do it. Um, we're competing with a spreadsheet there. So it means constantly kind of having to update, manually update spreadsheets, human error comes in. So that's part of the pain. The quantifiable pain there is when they're unable to do that is merchants and businesses run out of stock. And out of stock means a loss of sales, a loss of revenue. So that's initially kind of the primary problem that we're kind of you're trying to help merchants with. As a secondary problem there, you're probably moving into that category of having slow moving or even obsolete stock and at least identifying that uh, and trying to clear that as quickly as possible. Because we are talking about businesses that hold physical inventory, inventory that is in a warehouse somewhere represents cash that is locked up that you can't use and reinvest elsewhere in the business. So we're ultimately trying to help them kind of, you know, optimize that working capital so that they have the cash necessary to, to grow the business with. So that's the kind of the the pain we're we're focusing on right now. In terms of the kind of the the ideal persona is the things that we're clear about at least is and part of this is is, is aspirational. I'll explain I'll explain the thinking there, but Generally, any any e-commerce merchant that is beyond 
a million dollars a year in their revenue because that is a proxy for us at least of kind of growth and and also sophistication right they've they've got other things figured out in their business first they know how to drive growth and they're at that point where they're trying to optimize right so we're definitely a tool that helps them optimize they you need to have some other things figured out you need to have your own product market fit figured out before you can start optimizing inventory for example so Beyond a million dollars, you probably need 30 or 40 different SKUs, right? Um, stock keeping units for those not in the kind of retail e-commerce space, which essentially just means like, you know, 30 or 40 different products, i.e. a product catalog. So you need that. And then if I go even further, like our ideal kind of you know, customer really here is the kind of business that is big enough that they have... Uh, you know, a head of operations or a director of operations, because this really feel, falls into that realm of operations. And with that, that last part is the operational, the aspirational part for me, which was when I looked at ideas of what I wanted to build, I knew that I wanted to build something where we could, I, I don't have any appetite. I could have told you know, many, many people this before. I have no appetite for uh, selling into the enterprise. I'm not built for the enterprise. But with Cogsy, at least, we wanted to make sure that we can hit that that mid-market and then we can almost kind of you know, pull up some of that kind of SMB customers into that realm, at least in terms of workflow, not necessarily pricing. And the reason I wanted to, you know, to do that, so I wanted to solve the kind of problem that justifies someone paying us, you know, at least $5,000 a year, right? Or our ideal customer at least paying us $5,000 a year. Because in SaaS generally, that means more efficient growth, easier growth, etc. It obviously means the product challenge is a little harder to solve, but that really is, is that focus and that's how it plays into how we think about our ideal customer persona at this stage, as well as the kind of the pains that we're, you know, solving for them in this first version. I've heard so many controversial things about this SMB market, and especially that we're serving, you know, SMB founders with Userlist, that SMB doesn't essentially exist. So it's either small or like very large, and it's pretty hard to find that sweet spot because it's really kind of fluid, non-existing. I'm not sure. Do you have these considerations? <laughs> yeah, yes, right. Because if you if you Google what the definition of a SMB writes is, firstly, I don't think the definition has been updated for ages. Secondly, <laughs> the I think the definition, like the most predominant definitions, are probably SMB is defined as you know one to two hundred employees at a company, or one to three hundred. I think is the is the other definition that I often find. And admittedly, like a team of five has many, many different challenges and like the business is run in a kind of a significantly different way than a team of kind of 300, right? So I, I think that range is way too big. I think, you know, SMB, you know, is probably, SMB, you know, the three predominant buckets here then is SMB, mid-market and enterprise. And I think mid-market and enterprise are probably less clear, but the SMB sector can definitely use some some greater granularity in terms of how we actually break that down. Because if you're building, as I said, if you're building a product for a team, you know, of you know five or ten versus fifty or hundred, the workflows are just going to be different. Like the pains you need to solve for them is it's just different. So I tend to I tend to agree here there, right? Is that you know depending on where you land within that SMB space, your kind of unit economics and the product probably looks completely different, even though kind of you have two products side by side that supposedly serve the same kind of SMB market. How do you qualify leads? Uh, and did you have a specific, you know, what they call go-to-market strategy? Did you have a specific marketing idea when you pick the audience and the product? Or do you think this is sort of a chicken and the egg problem? So uh, I guess the disclaimer here is firstly, like the the go to market strategy is the the biggest part that I am yet to kind of figure out. Right, that's very much, you know, this this next phase for us. What I did do though, and maybe I'll try and abstract it a little bit because I think I have an unfair advantage here, at least, right? Which means I've built two companies in a similar space and. Like knocking on a door and saying, "Hey, I'm Eddie, co-founder of, of WooCommerce," like still gets <laughs> like that gets me into the door, right? And gets me to have some conversations. So I think that's slightly that's definitely an unfair advantage. And 
you know, which means some, some, you know, kind of founders at this stage might not be able to replicate that. So I did want to acknowledge that. But what I effectively did, Jane, was I went to, identified a couple of kind of what seemed to be ideal customers, did that outreach and effectively convinced them to join an early adopter kind of program, pilot program, where we had a very kind of low fidelity. And eventually when I'm, when the proper version of the the product is out in the next couple of weeks, I will share screenshots of the kind of that interim version that we built where we could kind of you know, sync up data, like look at data, just collaborate with the customer. Because what we effectively wanted there was just to do that, um, that initial kind of bit of validation that helped us to get to that ultimate V1 that we wanted to do. So that's what we're, we've done up until now. And with that, we've slowly had a kind of trickling in of whether it's you know via our website or at referrals. Referrals are kind of in word of mouth already is really working well for us, which effectively means I'm doing one-on-one calls with customers and then working really, really close with them on kind of you know implementing Cogsy. So the the playbook there, the generic playbook, and this is something that I did as part of my research. I, I reached out to a whole bunch of other founders that had built kind of you know SaaS solutions for e-commerce brands and asked them like if you had to do this again, like what would you do? And the resounding answer was go very high touch, almost consultative, small groups initially of customers and truly get entrenched into their kind of workflows and businesses and then essentially kind of start, you know, that halo effect outwards from there. So you're not you're not building custom software for a single a single customer. But it borders on that. Like you're sticking very, very close to a very small cohort of customers. And then you start abstracting that into something that is more universally applicable to a broader set of customers. Because that lands you, at least that's the playbook for getting closer to that kind of mid-market space that we want to ultimately kind of operate in. Do you think this strategy could work for smaller, not B2C, but something of that kind products? you know, working closely with customers, even if they pay small amount of money per month? I think as a, if you want to create some early advocates, then probably yes, but I don't think it's, I don't think the longevity is there, right? So with Cogsy and with the pricing that we we have in mind, we've not yet figured out pricing, but we have a few, kind of, we have a rule of thumb in terms of what we want to do in terms of pricing. Being that high touch translates well into that pricing, translates well into how we will operationalize, you know, our account managers or customer success managers and the unit's economics around that. I would honestly be fearful of the viability of doing this if you're not able to say, charge $200 a month for a customer. Because I think the, the overhead just becomes too much like the because the, ultimately the the biggest cost in most startups or most companies is the human cost thereof and you know o- almost over investing the the human hours into things that don't have an appropriate return is tough but that said i what i do still like about that and i think this is universally applicable regardless of the segment regardless of you know arpu or price is to think through like if you do that and you had this initial small cohort of customers that you really trusted, right? You were able to build a you know, kind of the type of product for them that they then kind of that then creates that viral coefficient where they then take it out into the world. Then I think that there is something there. But I would I would beyond that initial point, then I would change that kind of sales or go to market motion at least. I would only do it for that very first batch, and then I would go to something that's probably more product led in terms of my growth. What's your approach to product adoption? Is this batch of customers and the future customers, will they receive personal treatment from you or will it be self-serve? Because we talk about this a lot first as userless founders and second, even as with fellow founders, like there are four founders in my mastermind group. I'm not going to call names, but they're pretty experienced and none of them anticipated that with their current projects, which were not their first products, they will have challenges in that front. Like it's amazing how we should all do better on that. Yeah. So, so the plan here is initially we've also taken a few shortcuts with the actual building of the product, which means we literally do not have 
an onboarding flow at this stage. A, we also don't have, we've not built billing, right? Which means that there's all mm-hmm. kind of you know, a manual billing initially. And I imagine that, you know, once we have this next version, which we'll call you know V1 ready, at least for the first you know, two or three months, the status quo will be the only way to get into the product is to actually have a call with me. And I will kind of, you know, probably two calls, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, you know a sales-ish call initially that gets the commit and then another onboarding call once you've installed the product that I can take you through that. And I said, I think the, for me, the reason there is that it saves us time on building kind of, you know, onboarding where we have to make many assumptions, firstly, about what onboarding you know, needs to look like. I mean, I think like many, many listeners here, you've had obviously great um, your guests on your like productizing or systematizing something like onboarding. Like you can, I think you can only do that once you've figured out how to do it manually. And yes, you could make guesses and assumptions about best practices, but for a complicated product, that's probably harder to do. So I think we save time there. But then secondly, building that relationship with a customer is highly valuable to me. So one of the things that I'm kind of, that I would love to do is we'll, we'll probably never build a kind of an integration not probably. It's unlikely. Build an integration, say, into one of our customers, you know, accounting system, a QuickBooks or a Zero or something. But the way I know that I can drive the product and a customer's usage of our product forward is to to really understand the financial side of their business as well, because we are dealing with working capital, which is ultimately a financial thing, which has totally different context. And I think being kind of one on one in that onboarding. Has the you know, allows me to have the kind of conversations where I can make those things part of the conversation, which means I am theoretically accelerating my learning. So that's what I'm imagining doing for the first couple of months at least until I get burnt out, which uh, I've not yet solved for, <laughs> solved for that part thereof. But like that's that's the way I'm thinking about kind of doing that. And then eventually, as I said, kind of we will eventually move to self service and probably do so for um, smaller clients and then still at least still offer a kind of a, a white glove type, you know, onboarding for, for kind of bigger customers. Because I, I, again, like I think that is just that customer success approach that I would love. But I said, I think the you know, medium to long term, it has to have self-service. That's at least the goal that it has to have is my requirement. I don't think that's a universal requirement, but it has to have that. And ideally, I would love to figure out how we can eventually build some kind of product-led growth channel as well, where someone can sign up for a part of the product where they don't have to speak to a human at all. And we can use that almost as a kind of a, you know, a, a funnel of leads that we can then kind of always cherry pick and say, hey, here's some active users on this part of the product. Let's figure out how to have a call with them and get them into the product properly. What were the lessons, negative lessons from the past products that you would say, no, for this one, we are going to do it better. Like <laughs> something that like, you specifically wanted to avoid. Yeah, charge more. Um, I, I'm not the first person. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that was, um, you know what, Jane? I, I often, the, the reality is that with Convergio, we were by far the, not by far, at least to our kind of leading competitor, in, in the space, like they far outcharge us. The company and product that is probably now second to them in the e-commerce kind of email space was also slightly more expensive than us. And we still lost and we didn't have a worse product. And I think, you know, if you, I think firstly getting pricing right and charging slightly more, you're sending the right almost kind of psychological signal that this is worth paying for a, and obviously the product needs to back it up, right? But you're doing that. And secondly, at the higher prices, it's just easier to grow. You literally just have more breathing room and budgets to reinvest in in other growth initiatives, whether that's kind of building out the product or whether it's sales marketing success. But that really is something I was always fearful to do it. We ultimately did our biggest price increase upon acquisition for Convergio. And it made a whole lot of sense. Like that's that's what I can share there without breaking confidence. And by that stage, it was too late. Like we should have been, I as founder, I should have had the guts years earlier 
to charge what our software is worth, especially since we had incumbents in the space that was charging significantly more. I'm glad we're talking pricing. So for this new product, will it be pricing in tiers, single plan, or flexible metered pricing? Yeah, probably not metered. I have not yet figured out what tiering metric that I want to use. But the way, um, I'll qualify that as well. I have a great idea for a tiering metric that I think, like, or tiering or value metric, as I think is what the price gurus call it, right? Is I'm just not sure that we have access to that data point in an accurate way that we can actually use it. In a, and I think like whatever metric you use, um, you need full control over that metric. Um, when I say full control, in terms of calculating that metric, because people are going to ask you, why are you increasing or decreasing my account? Why are you charging this? And you want to be able to give them a concrete answer. So, But it definitely has that tiering mechanism. And then the second thing that I have identified in that you know, five to seven year initial kind of vision and roadmap that I had was I can totally imagine us building parts of Cogsy as modules that essentially then does has two kind of you know, different levers for expansion revenue. One is that kind of the, that value or tiering metric that goes up with kind of usage of the product. And the other is, you know, kind of the, the manual decision or kind of human decision, which is I want to use more of this product and I will enable these extra things on top of the kind of the base product. So I think not that I'm, again, not that I'm enamored with either the way they've done their pricing increases or with what it now costs to to use them. but I think there is a reason why it's rumored that Intercom are IPOing soon. Their pricing is obviously has obviously kind of worked. Um, so I think having what I'm ultimately I, I don't want to be like Intercom, but I think at least you know starting out, I wanted to build the kind of product where I could have that option of having both those levers for that expansion revenue over time. Because having that expansion revenue ultimately kind of makes having what's a negative net MRR churn kind of much easier to get to and net kind of net negative MRR churn is the holy grail of growing SaaS. Yes, expansion revenue, it's not like we like we talk about recurring revenue that it's magic, but real magic is expansion recurring revenue. <laughs> yeah. Like you said. And uh, if you can bake that in and maybe a viral component that you're really setting yourself up for some growth. Exactly. And hence, hence why I want to take multiple angles, right? So with Convergio, we had that, we were email marketing, right? So we build based on subscribers. Eventually, we had slightly different things before, but we had that expansion revenue built into the pricing model. But that's a organic kind of channel and still depends on how well this business does. I think adding that other component to it where you can have, you know, an account executive or account manager, CSM, ultimately reach out to the customer and say, hey, Jane, we see you're using, you know, user list for X, Y, Z, but we have this other thing. It's an add-on. This is what it's going to cost you. This is the kind of the, the benefit of this. So it just has that, you know, both organic and then this bit of a push that when you have that time and space in your business to also kind of be the catalyst for that expansion revenue. You just don't have, it's not that passive, right? Because organic growth or organic expansion revenue, it's great by all means, but you have to sit and wait for it. You have to sit and wait until your customer does certain things probably in their business to actually get to that kind of your next threshold that gets them to pay more. Whereas if you had some other mechanism to charge them more, something else that you can offer them, you can take that, you could be the catalyst, right? It's like within your realm of influence, at least. Yes, I love that. And also, speaking of pricing, what worked for us is setting higher baseline price. Yes. So it still depends, there's still a value metric, but this entry point pricing is high enough that it justifies, let's say, the support cost and just overall, you know, value that the tool provides even at the small scale right exactly right and we what was interesting back in um you know conversio days was we we initially or in the early days we had this notion our plan started at 19 bucks a month and we initially had the question of are we over investing on support relative to that type of customer 
And we actually had, we, at that stage, we had a full-time data scientist on the team and he, he, he probably spent too much time analyzing this for us. But what it ultimately came down to was that kind of your know, support per dollar was not kind of worse than, you know, significantly worse or different to other customer segments that we had. So I, I'm not sure that having a cheap plan is a bad thing for support in most cases. It, assuming you've built a decent product and you're not c- creating kind of undue support. What I do think and what I do like about that kind of higher minimum threshold or higher kind of initial plan there is it, I think it, it p- kind of pulls up the kind of customer that you have, right? Generally kind of gets you a more sophisticated customer, generally gets you a customer that doesn't have those, like delinquent churn or involuntary churn, right? Where like in our case in e-commerce, those small customers, they were the more the likely ones to kind of just close their business, for example. So I think I I like that part thereof. And generally, as I said, like it acts then as a filter as well. You know, but building software is hard giving it away for you know, 9 or 20 you know 19 dollars a month makes your unit economics harder and again like that's the price anchor then because people often say like hey there is a plan for 20 dollars but i'm paying 200 dollars and that feels like a big dis- you know, disconnect and discontent to them so i would much rather anchor that in a slightly higher kind of bucket just to take that relativity out of it we don't have too much time left today but i have so many more questions so let's just do Blitz style interview about different decisions that you have to make when you're starting out. And I'm going to talk about different assets that you have to build, etc. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Product name. Oh, product name. My wife came up with Cogsy, so she deserves all. <laughs> she do, you need to invite her to the interview or to the podcast to, to explain that. Did you have like many versions or is she completely responsible for the decision? Yeah, no, it's she's completely responsible. She just came up with the name. Um, it made total sense. And I guess the, the only other consideration there was for me is could I get the .com? And I eventually got the kind of two variations of the, the, the .com. So Cogsy with an S and a Z because I didn't know how people were going to spell it. Um, the official name is with the S. So I guess that was, I, I wanted the .com from day one. Um, and managed to get it um, for significantly less than what we had to pay for Convergio.com when we were already a mature company. Interesting that you're already adjusting for this misspelling, while, for example, my personal criteria is that the misspelling should be avoided at all costs. And and that's definitely the preference. I just know that human beings are imperfect, and I, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I can't get everyone to, be, to, to act in a kind of perfect way. Why do you think the .com is important? Even though it's 2021, I still think that I think there's a signaling value with it. Like I think when you see a really nice short domain and it has a .com, um, it also suggests the well maybe it's just that you know this company has too much money and they spend it on premium domains. But I think I to some extent I think it's still the holy grail. Interesting enough, like it never bothers me. Like whatever um, you know, service you know, all of the apps that I use. I I don't care what kind of you know, domain or TLD they use, but it just feels cleaner. It feels cleaner. It feels nicer. Yeah, we got our .com uh, for UserList a couple of years ago for 4K, and it's it sounded like a big investment at this point, but we we couldn't be happier now with it. Especially, I think we got really lucky, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so so we, we paid significantly more than that for Converger.com. <laughs> I can tell you that. I mean, I, I would almost flip that, Jen. Like, how, like you say you're really happy with like making that purchase. Like, is there any quantifiable way in which you kind of measure that kind of, you know, that happiness with that decision? Well, I think firsthand that UserList is a pretty, uh, pretty short and nice name for a product. And just matching that with a .com definitely brings more authority. And also got tired of typing .io everywhere. And I, I'm, you know, a control freak. And in email tools, it would just automatically highlight it at places where I wouldn't want to be linked. So <laughs> that was a little bit tiring. And you would never think about it when you were just starting out with a .io, for example. Yeah, and at least that aspect I got happy with. Yeah, and and by the way, I my my personal email address uses our family name pinard.io because I couldn't get the .com, and like I often have to write it down on forms, and I 
don't have the best handwriting either. So I often get the person on the side of the forum saying, just like, is this Pinar.10? Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the, .io has always, always been for the, you know, the geeks and the nerds. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, we wrote a blog post about it, so I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Logo and branding. Yeah, that that was the first big spend beyond the domain. Um, I hired a lady by the name of Rosie Manning, rosiemanning.com. Everyone should check her out. Um, and Rosie, what I wanted was I wanted to really think through the brand because I want to build a company that has strong values and I wanted that to be visually represented from day one. So what we did with our initial brand guide was to put the initial kind of design system or scaffolding in place that would both inform the the marketing website and what we do there, as well as the initial product designs. So um, as I said, I, we spent quite a bit of time there doing a lot of qualitative things around our values and what this kind of bigger product kind of your know, strategy and, and mission is, um, and then trying to tie that into uh you know, both are kind of just, and when, when I say brand here, it's not just about the logo. The logo is obviously a core component thereof, but we also identified, you know, everything from, you know, color palette to other visual elements that would ultimately kind of support this, you know, this, the definition of our, of our brand. I want to highlight one mistake I, I made with the, with the userless logo. And I would, I should have known as a designer because I had planned for the logo to be used within the UI and within the website, et cetera. And I made it lightweight. And I never realized that when, you know, you have like big listicle of logos, for example, as sponsors or as integrations, a lightweight logo really doesn't work. <laughs> and you would never think about it upfront. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because Cogsy is, what was interesting there, um, this I can share, like a big part of how I think about life and both you know, business as well is I think, you know, a lot of it has too much masculinity in it. And I, I know I might be losing some people here and almost, cause I, and, I, <laughs> and I and I actually think that a big part of capitalism, by the way, is has complete like toxic masculinity, you know, in it. So part of what I wanted to do, even though I am, I'm a male and I definitely have you know, kind of, you know, masculine energy as well as feminine energy. What I want to do with Cogsy was have a, have a brand that is kind of slightly softer, slightly more feminine. But yet, if you look at our logo, it is, it is very strong in a very specific way. And, and I don't mean to suggest that masculine is stronger than feminine, right? I think those are absolute misnomers here. But that those were the kinds of things that you know, kind of when I worked with Rosie, the things that we worked kind of through is how can we communicate that femininity without, without kind of, and you know, communicate power effectively, right? So softness and power, you know, kindness and ambition. So really thinking through like those kind of, you know, characteristics that we, we want in our brand. And by the way, going back a few minutes, uh, we also have an episode of UI Breakfast about product naming. Uh, I think with bread flowers, I'm going to link to that in the show notes in case anybody is for big listen on the topic. You mentioned that you wanted to approach website design and the product design as one design system, which is amazing and very wise because as a perfectionist, I hate when these go like not, not go hand in hand. That happens all over the place, especially bad when people have pretty marketing website and really bad product and it only occasionally it's vice versa. Yeah, exactly right. And I think like, you know, obviously the, I think the contexts are always different, right? Like a marketing site is for, for marketing and information, whereas a product UI is for different things. Like you want to use the thing, it needs to drive different kind of value. What is important for me though, is that there is a, is a consistency in those, in the brand, in the UI and UX conventions. Because what I'm ultimately trying to do here is I'm not just trying to sell someone on a pretty marketing website or sell someone on this feature that we have. I'm ultimately trying to get them to buy into this much bigger narrative of the things kind of the Cogsy stands for. And that's that's what the kind of the brand is for me. Ultimately, I want them to buy into that brand, which is this big holistic kind of umbrella that sits all over that. And I think to do that, you like even though they're context switching from you know from your ebook to your marketing website to your product back to social media back to marketing website across all those interactions i want them to feel this is cogsy i want them to kind of you know see like our values in those 
in those actions, in those interactions, in those UI conventions. I want them to see those things. I want them, like, I, I want them to almost be sick of like them hearing AD kind of you know espouse all these philosophical things about like why they build the product in this way and what we stand for as a company and as a kind of your product team. But that's what I really want there. And I think visually at least, like you have to or the closer you get to tie that together, the better story you can ultimately tell and sell. Content. Do you think a blog and a lot of content is a prerequisite for a good SaaS? Do you think you should start SEO thoughts early? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think any any content game at this stage is it is a longer term strategy. It's not a silver bullet that's going to drive significant growth tomorrow if you can only get started tomorrow. So yes, I would start thinking about that as soon as possible. I would do. I would definitely think about. I've never been that big on SEO at least, but yes, I would also consider that angle thereof. And I think what I actually like most at this stage is this kind of emerging discussion around, you know, kind of, you know, SaaS companies also being a media brand and thinking through what that actually means and how how content and branded content kind of plays into that. So I I, I would definitely always do those things unless unless you have a kind of you know, completely different go-to-market strategy. You know, maybe it is you've got this really great LinkedIn kind of outreach thing going for you um, and you can do that to find your first, you know, 100 customers, 200 customers, 500 customers. Then by all means, don't worry about content initially. I think stick to your core competencies. But for Cogsy at least is we want to be we want to have an opinion and we want to be part of the conversation. And I think like having a good content strategy allows us to participate in the communities and ecosystems that matter most to us. Are you writing this yourself or are you hiring it out? Both. I, I'm definitely trying to do slightly less, <laughs> less of the work than I did with, um, <laughs> than I did with Convergio. So I'm trying to, Kind of uh, really, you know, for me at least as as founder here, what I really want to focus on is, you know, how do I fund the business? How do I build a team? How do I, you know, stay, you know, as product owner? And how do I have those, you know, initial sales, you know, kind of conversations with customers, i.e. sticking close to customers? Everything else I'm happy to get senior, capable, unique, kind of, you know, magical kind of you know, team players in to to help with those things. So there are some things that you know, some of the content, some of the insights does reside in my head. So I need to figure out how to translate those things in a way that I don't necessarily have to be the face or the voice of that content. So, but in the interim, like I, I will definitely be, do some of it and we'll collaborate with others to do other parts thereof. How do you solve the problem that we've come across a lot is that our industry is pretty niche, pretty hard. And it, it's hard to expect that an external writer, copywriting contractor would have a similar understanding of, you know, segmentation, customer emails and everything else that we are doing. Uh, so what do you do with the e-commerce? Do you have such well-equipped writers come in? That, yes, that's that, that's a hope at least. And, and yes, by the way, I've, I've, wor <laughs> I, I've worked with many freelance writers that specialize in this, like in that segment um, that are highly capable. It is also, it's not the the, the, it's definitely not the cheapest option to go down that route. We're we're hoping to again have a bit of a hybrid approach there, where we essentially do some things internally, where I can infuse the ideas and the content with my experience and my knowledge, but then also work with those really incredible writers that understand the space that can augment the things that we're doing. Because I think like that blended approach gets us. I think greater diversity of content, firstly, but also a diversity of um, of the unit economics in terms of the cost of production. Whereas it's always slightly cheaper for us to do some things internally versus kind of outsourcing it to to kind of your A level kind of your know, A players. Um, but that's that's the, the hope here, and that's what we're kind of that's how we're structuring our you know, content strategy for the next twelve months. Knowledge base. Do you think it's necessary to have one? Probably eventually, yes, but initially, no. We're we're not. Well, it's not. It's not. It's not, it's not part of the go live plan. I've I've obviously I've not thought about it. I would imagine that as soon as we want to build, have a self service sign up, we would have to have it. I don't think there's a way to not have some kind of knowledge base 
to augment what you do in the product in terms of onboarding to help with that. By the way, I should mention that knowledge base would, should probably live in a subfolder. I mean, in domain name slash docs slash something. And the same for blog. I mean, that's a note for our listeners who are planning for it because migration down the road is a bit painful and we surely know it's beneficial for SEO. Yeah, that's, uh, I I agree with that. Like I can totally, <laughs> I, I, I don't think like it, neither of those things I think should be part of product. I will add though that I think, um, and I've not found a great example, but so this is more of that kind of unicorn theoretical idea that makes sense in my head. But Figure out a way to also blur the lines between what is content and what is product could be a game changer, right? So i.e. getting the content, whether it's through a knowledge base article or an educational piece on your blog, but getting that contextually into the right place in your product to also find the user at the right time when they need that, there's definite value there. Um, but I do think that that is very, very hard to, as at least as far as I know, to, to execute on. What products from your experience have done this well? No, I've 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 zero example of that. Hence, <laughs> hence, hence why I said it's just this this, and I'm I'm sure that there are companies that kind of does this. I'm sure that I didn't have the most unique thought here, and that I saw something, heard something that sparked this idea, but I don't have a great example of where I think this this works out or plays out really well. Another question: mobile app or a very well-designed, responsive version, do you think these are important? It depends on whether you really want to support that use case, right? So, for example, the Converjo, much of what we did was email marketing automation, which meant that things like our email builder, our workflow, like email sequence builder, like those things, I don't think you should do those things on on a mobile device, right? Like, that's, I don't think that's necessary. You do that on a computer. What I do think make sense for many products is to think through what are the the mobile specific workflows that they want to support and then design responsive screens specifically for those parts of the app i.e not the whole app because i think again like as smaller product teams it is very very hard to build a big product and to support like all of those you know to support both kind of desktop and mobile screens and i would personally Unless there is a really specific use case for it, I would also steer clear of native native apps, um, native mobile apps at least. You need to there needs to be a very very specific reason why you want to support someone not sitting with their computer um, doing this one thing. Email list, customer, lifecycle yes. email. Yes. Things like that. Uh, yes. cho- those choices you have to make. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes to, to all of it. Like e- email is not going away anytime soon. Um, so yes, I think from from day one, like even before day one, you know, build an email list in whatever way you can, and um, make sure that you offer um, and 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 give the right amount of value to those people that that fork over an email address. How about lifecycle email? email onboarding, things like that? So for us, at least, I mean, I mentioned we don't have a kind of onboarding, anything in that onboarding realm at the moment. But yes, as soon as we put that in place, like that kind of getting, I think firstly, you know, the way, depending on what your kind of onboarding flow looks like, whether it's 7, 14, 30 days, you can, we always extended it slightly. And I think, you know, working towards a 60 or 90 and kind of day initial period of keeping a new user engaged, if they don't drop off completely, I think is helpful before you then switch them to some kind of, you know, longer term nurture sequence, whether it's by switching them to kind of you know, a blog based content only or kind of periodic, periodic outreach about kind of new features or ways to jump on a call and learn more about about those new features, i.e. kind of, you know, actually kind of, you know, uh, almost a secondary sales kind of opportunity or conversation. Those are things I I think is important. And I, what I would probably say there is in terms of, because those things are the things that can be automated, but the work is front-loaded. And I would try and automate at least parts thereof as quickly as possible. You can always build on automations and build that out as you learn over time. But the last thing you want is as soon as things start growing and you have no automations in place, get to the point where now you have 10 other things on your to-do list every single day and building out some kind of automated process 
some kind of automated email sequence, for example, is not on that to-do list, yet you need it. Um, and it becomes a bit of a chicken-egg situation, whereas if you had that, you'd probably have to do less of this other thing, but you're caught between a rock and a hard place. So I would definitely say, yes, like do all those things as soon as possible in any new product. I'm actually sharing the same opinion on the knowledge base side. So I think we front loaded a ton of work into that with UserList. Maybe that was not wise in terms of, you know, our time investment, but I'm definitely happy that we had it in place by the time we started growing so that we didn't have to distract ourselves that much with the setup work. Exactly right. Because again, like I think anything in that realm of, you know, kind of support um, generally is, it feels like a bit of a grudge, right? Like it, it doesn't feel like we're doing something that promotes growth, but having it in place is the thing that enables growth. So like, I, I agree there. I would just, I would just take a kind of a almost MVP VP approach to all of this, which means like put a knowledge base in place, put the most important things there, make sure that the content you put in there is relatively evergreen, right? So the, you know, even though video is great, I would not for an early product include any kind of your know, video tutorials or overview because the UI is going to change, which means that video, which was time consuming to produce initially needs to change, which means it needs that new kind of another kind of investment of time. So do things that are mostly evergreen or evergreen-ish there and only do the most important things and then kind of build out from there as you need it. Live chat or a support widget for the website and for inside the app? I would um, I would probably not do live chat, at least not initially. Um, and at least not until like I know that we can fully support it. Gun to my head, if we had to do this tomorrow, I would also use Help Scout for this. There's a tool recommendation. I hope the Help Scout guys send me a t-shirt or something. Yeah, we use them as well. Very nice guys, definitely. We do share the no live chat philosophy there for our SMB founder audience, but everybody's different, really. Every every business is different. Yeah, um, I mean, I I know on that front, Jane, like um, Spencer Fry over at Podia, he swears by live chat, um, and he still does a lot of it himself, even though. I think Podia is a team of almost 30 at this stage. And I think the, I'm not, maybe I would feel differently about this if my time zone also was different, right? So I unfortunately know that <laughs> the, kind of the, the, the time that I don't want to be on my computer is the time my customers are online. And I, as I said, I, I think it needs to be consistent in terms of what you can offer your, your customers. So I see the benefit of having live chats. Everything moves faster. But maybe as well, like with by targeting a different kind of customer segment that's not SMB, like live chat is just not as important to them. We touched upon help desk. Um, so why should people set up a shared inbox early? And like we set up one early as co-founders, we never looked back. But I know quite a few founders who are solo who just deal with their personal inbox for quite a long while. Yeah, I think two things there. I think one, it creates the kind of the habits internally of how to collaborate on customer conversations. Let's just call it that. So getting that in place, which means by the time you onboard someone else, those habits and processes is already in place. But crucially, yes, I think, yes, yes right? <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> but crucially, I think the thing that people kind of your founders neglect when they keep things in their personal inbox is that those kind of customer conversations are such a wealth of information just there. And the easiest way for a new support agent to train themselves up is to find similar tickets or similar past conversations. So having that in a centralized place, even if it's not organized, even if it's not sorted anyway, tagged, right? Like that is very, very helpful. So I think that is important. And then ultimately, I think it's a better customer experience. As soon as any customer has to email two or three different email addresses, to get help with different things, you don't have that consolidated single view of the health of your customer account effectively. So I know that there are like getting a Gmail account essentially is free, right? And you can just use that for support. Whereas any support desk, you know, help desk software will cost you money. Um, but again, I think it's, I think it's about kind of, you're putting the right foundations in. And when you build a house, you build the foundation first. And I think we barely scratched the surface. And I'm so glad we had all these discussions, which just outline how much infrastructure there needs to be in place and how many decisions you have to make that don't even 
closely relate to the product, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know what, Jane, I, I can actually, like, this was a lot of fun, by the way, especially this, um, the Blitz round of things. I, when I initially started planning out a next software gig before the idea was Cogsy, I, I have this massive notion doc about like everything from like, you know, do this, don't do that to like use these tools for these different things. Cause sometimes you make a decision with a tool in your business and it mostly works and then something else pops up, but then switching cost is just too high. And what is interesting is some of that has come to fruition and some of that is that I planned out or thought about back then. And this is a short, like six, seven, eight months ago, right? Some of that is all already irrelevant. And I think ultimately, like as, as you build a product, there are certain things that you need to be aware of, i.e. these things are coming down the line. But most of the work is really just in the now, figuring out like, what do I need to do today and kind of this next week to kind of you know, move, move the needle, make some progress. The other things kind of can always come. As long as you, again, like I think, think about what those foundational things are, put the foundations in place, make sure that they can grow in a relatively kind of future-proof manner but then it's almost a set and forget thing. Like you can always change things out. You can always augment things in future. I would not, um, I wouldn't overthink these things too much. Yes, definitely. And there is this, here's the benefit of why your second product will probably do better than the first is because you already know how you're going to operate and all these operating decisions, they come much easier. So you can save the brain power for the most complex product decisions, not for the infrastructure. Yeah, well, yes, exactly, which is also why um, I'm building a team in a way that I can almost exclusively focus on the product, that I don't have to kind of, you know, rack my brain about those things that I'm not, that doesn't come that naturally to me, for example. You know, this episode was supposed to be about your strategy of building a team, and it's like we're hour in and we have not started on the team yet, but maybe in a few sentences, what's your strategy? You mentioned delegating more than hiring more seasoned people, right? So what are your first hires and what the planned hires are? Yeah. So the biggest thing that changed for me, Jane, is that, uh, you know, towards the, the end of last year, I got exposed to to a book called Who Not How um, by an author called Dan Sullivan. And the, the basic premise of the book is it's nothing is ever a question of, you know, how do I accomplish X? It is, should be who do I need to accomplish X? And I've taken that into kind of really thinking through how do I build a new team and across my team have identified certain roles. So i.e. my lead engineer, very, very senior individual that I'm familiar with that I can trust, right? So I know that I've got kind of, he's got my back there. Similarly, I am, you know, at this stage, I've extended an, an offer, you know, hopefully by the time this this airs, the, the offer had been accepted for a really incredible head of growth that I've, you know, recruited. And generally it's someone that I would, that I only hired, try to hire for Convergio like three years in when we were, um, you know, on our, you know, on our way to $2 million ARR. So, and the reasoning behind these things is, I think what is important in the composition of a team is, I, I know that I need senior leaders in the team. I know I need people that can come in, bring their previous experience, hit the ground running in the same way that I can take my experience building two software companies before. And I can do things in a slightly more efficient way because I know where the levers are. I know where the kind of, you know, the, the bottles are in the road, et cetera. But I think I need, like, I need those senior leaders. So that's really is part of it and, and doing that sooner. Um, but then also balancing that with giving kind of, you know, new young talents an opportunity to grow and effectively just, and the reason I think that needs to be balanced is if you bring a, a younger or less experienced person into a team, they need mentoring and coaching. If I'm the only, like if I'm the only senior leader on my team and I need to do management, I need to do some making and I need to do kind of mentoring and coaching. I have no time left in my day for and week for anything else. So I think it is important to have more senior leaders in the team to ultimately uplift the whole team, to get like that kind of, you know, X percentage bump of, you know, productivity measured in effectivity and efficiency really out of, out of the whole team. So that's really something. And I said, that does mean that I am spending more. I'm spending, we're still pre-revenue, so I'm spending more than I'm making obviously on this. But there is that belief that with the right people, 
the kind of if I can solve for the who, then the who can totally figure out the why. Oh, sorry, the 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 how. Yeah, and it's 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 a it's a hard balance to to hit. Really, we had a discussion at Tiny Seed lately. I had a dedicated um, like session on how you should be hiring developers, and if you're cash strapped, like limited in resources, it's probably better to hire somebody seasoned, uh, but for smaller amount of time, as opposed to somebody very junior but full time. You can make either work, but just as you mentioned, it's going to take your own resources and coaching. Yeah, exactly. And I 100% support that. We we have a data scientist that is doing part-time with us. And admittedly, and kind of if if I had to try and afford him full-time in absolute terms, like that would totally break any of my budgets and forecasts. But he is totally worth it for the 20 hours a week that we have him. So I, I totally agree with that. Like it is, a, you know, a part of it is, Early stages is much more about quality than it is quantity, yet most founders tend to try and solve for quantity, i.e. let me just get as many worker bees as possible. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, um, but get worker bees because they can we can churn out more work, but that more doesn't always move the needle. The right work at the right quality you know, that that's what tends to to really move the needle and get you to that kind of next milestone on your journey of building a, a great product and business. I think we need to wrap up eventually. <laughs> like we can uh, probably extend on this topic more and more. Uh, one final piece of advice, maybe maybe two, like one do and one don't for people who are starting out. Look at how generic this can get. So like what <laughs> what is the best strategy? Yeah, the the do would probably be to to really think through think through who not how um and just do that, you know. In fact, like the the suggestion I'll make there is like do go buy the book and read it. It's a it's a short read um and it's absolutely transformed um my life. So um and the way I think about kind of you know building a business. So that would probably be my do. And the don't would probably be as don't even listen to this episode and kind of you know, take anything you know as as gospel. I think um, yes, there are many kind of almost universal kind of things that one can learn from other entrepreneurs and founders that have learned some lessons. But always remember that there's there's context and nuance to these things. And I think part of being a founder and an entrepreneur is it is your job to figure out what that nuance and context is. So. Don't take this as gospel, especially don't go onto Twitter and look at what everyone else is doing. Just focus, like learn, but focus on your your own journey. Absolutely. Because like you're definitely, you definitely know that you don't know a lot of things. So you're just sitting at a system for, for learning and you just need some tools as a foundation and then you just need the process. And it's never about, you know, hitting a single goal. It's about the journey, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Eddie. It was great. It's absolutely huge episode, but I'm hoping it's helpful for people who are just starting out with their product. Where can people find more of what you do and uh, your product online? Yeah, the best place, Jane, is to go to my personal website, adii.me, um, or I'm ad on Twitter as well, adii. Much of the the book is there, firstly, and I'm I'm trying to be diligent about sharing kind of your know, lessons learned almost in real time for for Cogsy as well. So anyone that wants to see how I think through building Cogsy, like there'll be stuff there, and some of the things that we've discussed, i.e., around kind of how I how I decided on the idea what uh, kind of how I decided to build the brand, et cetera. Those are things that are already on, on the website as well. So for anyone that wanted a little bit more kind of your know, richness to what we discussed, they can totally check that out on adii.me. Thanks so much, Adi. This was amazing and good luck with Cogs. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. Thanks for the conversation. 